Robert Gates served as Secretary of Defense under Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. He also has served as Director of the Central Intelligence Agency, and he was a member of the National Security Council in four administrations. In all, he worked for eight presidents of both political parties, and he served in uniform in the U.S. Air Force, something which always seems to me worthy of note and praise. He's written a new book, Exercise of Power, American Failures, Successes, and a New Path Forward in the Post-Cold War World. Eric Edelman has served in senior positions in both the State and Defense Departments. He was the U.S. Ambassador to Finland and Turkey in the Clinton and Bush administrations. He retired from the Foreign Service as a career minister. He's now a senior advisor for FDD. I'm Cliff May, and I'm looking forward to discussing a range of issues with both of them. I'm also looking forward to having you with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Secretary Gates, I, let me start by asking, what motivated you to write Exercise of Power? And did you conceive it a, of it as a, a memoir that's also a history or a history that's also a memoir? Well, actually, it's the only book that I've written that really wasn't much of a memoir, but about a period during most of which I was not in government. Um, uh, so over the 30-year period that the book covers, it, it really, I was in government only about four and a half. Um, I think I had two motives in writing the book. One was um, the, the perception of where the United States stood in the world in 1993 when I retired from as director of central intelligence at the end of the first Bush administration and where the United States stands in the world today. And, and the question I had was, how did we go from one place to another? And I would say from a very, very strong place where we basically had a singular level of political, economic, military, and cultural power, uh, unrivaled probably in the history of the world, at least since the Roman Empire to where we are today beset by uh, challenges at every turn and, and uh, uh, paralyzed here at home, at least at the federal level. The second motivation was in, in thinking about the period and, and particularly thinking about as we look ahead, what I believe will be a very long uh, competition or rivalry with China and comparing it to the Cold War with the Soviet Union and, and the notion that particularly in the Cold War, because we couldn't have, uh, because the consequences of a military confrontation with the Soviet Union would be so catastrophic, in many respects, 
the Cold War competition was carried out using non-military instruments of power. Um, it was the heyday of USIA, uh, uh, which was created by President Eisenhower, uh, USAID, which was established under President Kennedy along with the Peace Corps. Um, we had a global strategic communications capability. There were enormous economic tools that we used. Uh, probably the most significant was our ability to deny the Soviet Union technology uh, that might help them either address their economic problems or advance their uh, military programs. And, and I realized that at the end of the Cold War, nearly all of these non-military instruments of power in the 90s were dismantled. Uh, USIA was abolished in 1998 by the Congress. Uh, USAID, the Congress voted to abolish it. President Clinton refused to do so, but put it under the State Department. Uh, strategic or, or um, public diplomacy was tucked into a corner of the State Department and the, and the head of it doesn't even report directly to the secretary at this point. And, and I realized that one of the reasons I believed our foreign policy in the uh, post-Cold War period became substantially militarized was the weakness of the non-military instruments of power and, and the unwillingness or inability of senior policy and decision makers to figure out how to use those instruments effectively uh, against uh, the challenges that we faced. And it was also, I think, uh, one, of, one of the instruments of power that I, that I list that's not intrinsically uh, an instrument of power, but matters a lot, is, uh, is, is, is wise leadership. And I think where we fell down in both the Clinton and Bush administrations was uh, where we had, where we were able to accomplish our initial objectives in places like Somalia and Haiti and Iraq and Afghanistan, as we changed the mission to much more ambitious goals, that's where we got into trouble in all of those countries. So those are the two main motives that I, that I had. And, 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 and finally, uh, at the end of the book, make the argument that, that the national security structure we have today is outdated and is in dramatic need of uh, restructuring and, and reform. Uh, the structure we have today was created in 1947, uh, essentially to fight the Cold War. And we need to do things in a very different way uh, as we look ahead and particularly as we look to the multiple challenges that I think we face from China. Uh, unlike the Soviet Union, uh, China is rich and they're smart. And whereas the Soviet Union was always essentially a, a, a one-dimensional power, their military power, China's a multi-dimensional power as we're seeing in a number of different places. So reconstituting and rebuilding these non-military instruments of power, it seems to me, is essential as we look at the uh, rivalry with China ahead. I'm going to ask you to drill down on a lot of that. Before I do, let me bring Ambassador Edelman in. Ambassador Edelman, I, I, my guess is you agree with most of that. I'd be particularly interested to know what you disagree with in what you just heard. I don't think I, I, I disagree with uh, 
with too much. I mean, I, I uh, like uh, Secretary Gates, I do think that we have not been using all the instruments of U.S. national power as effectively uh, as, as we could. Um, in fact, um, as you know, Cliff, um, my, uh, my colleague and our friend Ray Takei and I have written yes. an article in Foreign Affairs uh, about U.S. policy towards Iran that is uh, very similar uh, to what uh, Secretary uh, you know, Gates uh, has written in his uh, book in the chapter he wrote on, uh, on Iran about using uh, all of the instruments of military power, not just aircraft carriers in the Gulf as an instrument of containment, but uh, using exchanges and um, uh, broadcasting and uh, exposure of the corruption of the clerical regime uh, to you know, create internal pressure on the Islamic Republic of Iran and provide the U.S. governments with some leverage that they've been lacking in their dealings with Iran um, really since the revolution in 1979. So let's stay on that for a minute, um, and particularly about strategic communications and uh, public diplomacy. Uh, you, you mentioned this, uh, Mr. Secretary. You, we had the U.S. Information Service perform, I think, pretty well. My reading of history in the 1950s, particularly when Edward R. Murrow was the head of it. And since then, I would say decreasingly, not so much. I mean, um, oversight by a broadcasting board of governors uh, didn't really succeed. There's a new experiment, the U.S. Agency for Global Media. Uh, It's headed by what is intended to be a strong CEO. It took the Trump administration uh, until last summer to get one in place. He's supposed to be in that position for three years. It'd be interesting to see uh, the reaction of a Biden administration to that. I'm not sure they're going to go along with that. I'm not, I don't know, but maybe you have some idea how in this day and age we structure um, our, our our strategic communications, our global media, um, broadcasting, Voice of America, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, um, social media. I, the, I can't see a bureaucratic structure that is likely to work. I'm sure there is one. But I'm not sure what I would, you know, if I were being asked by the current president or the next president, what would you do? I'm not sure I know the answer. Do you? Well, first of all, let me just say, uh, I think another period of uh, a kind of halcyon performance on the part of USIA was during the Reagan administration when Charlie Wick uh, mm-hmm. was the head of it. And and there was a Fair close enough. tie between Wick and Reagan and and I think uh, really it, it and and you had a great communicator, as they say, uh, in President Reagan, and so he understood the need for this, and and that was another period where I think it really uh, shone. I I think I mean this is kind of uh, contrary to uh, um, the the conventional wisdom. I I think that I mean I have witnessed for the last. 40 years, a little over 40 years, um, the political infighting associated with the Board for International Broadcasting and the Agency for Global Media. And I first saw this when I was Spig Brzezinski's exec uh, on the NSC staff. And Spig had a very real interest in the radios and, and in broadcasting the American message and so on. And it was a frustration on the part of uh, every national security advisor and president that I worked for uh, and with that um, 
there was such a disconnect between um, the the management of the radios and American foreign policy. And I think, I mean, if if I were starting with a clean sheet of paper, you know, maybe I'd keep the agency for global media, but I think it should be much more closely tied. I don't, I think, I think it's important to maintain the independence of the voice of America. People all over the world uh, have come to trust the voice of America in no small part because it's willing to criticize the United States. And I think it gives it credibility uh, around the world. But in terms of the rest, in terms of the voice, in terms of of the radios, and, and we not only have Radio Liberty and Radio for Europe, we've got uh, the Persian language uh, radio. We've got some Asian radios now. So we have some real capability there. Um, but I think, I think that uh, I, would, I would have the, uh, a, the head of the Agency for International, uh, for, for Global uh, Media, actually uh, report to the Secretary of State. I mean, this is a taxpayer-funded operation. And, and I think it ought to be more closely tied to foreign policy objectives of the United States. And, but it's not just the radios. And this is one of the points that I make in the book. This, you know, radios are 20th century uh, technology. So one of the points that I make in the, arg- in the book is that just as the, as the Russians and the Chinese are using cyber to uh, infiltrate our social media and and to try and disrupt and create problems for us, we ought to give them a taste of their own medicine and we ought to use our cyber capabilities to, to break through their firewalls and communicate through their social media uh, to their people about the corruption of their leaders and about the, the cultural genocide of the Uyghurs and and a variety of other things like that. So I think I would broaden actually the mandate of the Agency for Global Media and make that the strategic communications arm of the government, uh, of the United States government. And I would give it the authority to coordinate the messaging and strategic communications of all of the other departments of the government. The The Defense Department has a huge strategic communications effort. CIA has a big effort. Treasury has an effort. There are a number of different elements of the government, and they all kind of go their own way. There's no coordination. There's no coherence to the messaging and what is our objective? What's our strategy in terms of applying these strategic communications? So, so I think create, I mean, the Agency for Global Media spends about 700 million uh, taxpayer dollars a year. And, and to have them sort of sitting on a cloud completely outside the, the, the ambit of the American government seems very strange to me. And I, I, I think that there ought to be a change along those lines. And I realize that that will give almost everybody who works at the Voice of America a huge heartburn, but that's what I think. Right. And I want to move on to other subjects, but I want to let you in, Eric. And also, yeah, as an ambassador, the idea that public diplomacy if you're a diplomat, sure, you can do public diplomacy. I don't know if anybody ever gave any training. I've done seminars with public affairs officers, and some of them are terrific. Others I found neither willing nor able to uh, convey the administration's, this was during the Bush administration's uh, policies and perceptions. Just give us a, just a minute on that, because I want to get on a well, lot of subjects. I would say a couple of things. First, um, I agree with uh, everything that Secretary uh, Gates said, and in particular, the uh, importance of 
moving way beyond radios. It's now uh, radio, television, but all the digital media, social media, et cetera. This is a very complex uh, challenge. My view of USIA over the years uh, was that it had become much too input uh, oriented. Um, and, you know, it became an issue of like, how many op-eds have we placed or how many, uh, you know, uh, how many, uh, you know, uh, jazz bands have we had come through and, and visit, you know, country X, uh, as opposed to, you know, how much are we moving the needle right. in, in affecting public opinion in the host, host country. In fact, I remember as ambassador to Turkey, when we were doing our mission program plan, uh, when it came to the you know public affairs, public diplomacy, we were specifically enjoined that we couldn't use polling data in the country as a metric for measuring our, our performance, which struck me as you know just crazy, uh, because you know you if you can't show that you're actually moving the needle in the country, uh, how are you measuring what you know what what you're doing? I, I would just uh, add one thing to what the secretary said. I know you you're trying to get me to disagree with Secretary Gates. But, <laughs> Uh, and I don't know whether he'll agree with this, but I, I think that um, we probably need to reconceptualize a bit uh, this entire effort. We talk in the national security strategy that H.R. Um, uh, McMaster uh, kind of uh, released in December of 2017 and in the national defense strategy that Jim Mattis released in January of 2018 about the long term strategic competition that the United States is in and, and in particular with China. Uh, and to uh, some lesser degree with Russia. But in this area, uh, we are not in competition with them in in the day-to-day. We are in conflict every day with them because essentially the the PRC, in particular the Communist Party of of China um, and the the Russian government are, are waging political warfare against the United States every day. And this is something that, you know, we uh, knew about and did reasonably well in the 1940s and 1950s. And then as Secretary Gates uh, was saying, we did again in the Reagan administration. I'm thinking particularly of the kind of assistance we gave to solidarity in Poland. But it's it's something that, you know, we sort of did away with. It fell into dissuasive. We haven't done it for the 30 years that Secretary Gates has been discussing. And I, th- I think it's a competency we need to rediscover. We're talking about military. Let me ask this. Look, our military is tasked with preparing preparing to deter or, if necessary, defeat, at this point, multiple threats, very different kinds of threats. You've alluded to that. We've, we, Al-Qaeda still exists. The Islamic State still exists, deprived of territory, but it's operating. The Islamic Republic of Iran trying to, it, it still has ambitions for nuclear weapons and the missiles to carry them anywhere on Earth. North Korea, of course, uh, we may want to come back to that um, uh, because that's uh, that's been a 25-year failed effort to stop them from getting to where they are now and where they're going. And you read about that in your book. China, you've mentioned. Um, is your impression, Mr. Secretary, that the Pentagon has been and is adequately preparing for all these threats and challenges? I think so. And I, I think that uh, I think one of the things that's happened um, um, more since I left was was more emphasis on reinvestment in new technologies. Um, I, I you know, there's there the notion that during the uh, Iraq and, and Afghan wars, we kind of didn't pay any attention to the strategic equation 
uh, I think is is sadly uh, and badly mistaken. Uh, it was, I mean, while while I was secretary, we started the new bomber program, the B twenty one program. We started the new uh, ballistic missile submarine program. We funded the F thirty five. We funded a new tanker. Um, but I think I think the emphasis uh, in recent years on AI, on hypersonics, things like that, are all very very important. I think the way that the military is approaching how you knit all this together. Uh, not only within the services, but among the different elements of the services so they can communicate with one another uh, in real time. And, and the changed assumptions in terms of not having, you know, you can't count on the fact that in, in a conflict you would have Guam or you would have the bases in Japan and so on. I think they're thinking more realistically. I think that uh, the focus, particularly in the Navy on on uh, unmanned uh, uh, instruments, uh, the Air Force is working on on that, obviously. But uh, undersea uh, drones and things like that are all are all good technologies. I think that the the worry that I have is is the unpredictability of the defense budget, uh, and and you know I never will forget that. Um, I, I mean, I think a huge damage to the military was done uh, by the Sequestration Act in the fall of 2011. So here's the absurdity of it. In 2011, uh, the defense budget uh, represented 15% of the federal budget, of federal expenditures. But the Defense Department had to take 50% of this $1.2 trillion sequestration cut. Why the Republicans ever agreed to that, I will never understand. But the problem is, I mean, that was one thing. It was the, the cut was one thing, but personnel was exempted. Long-term procurement was difficult to go after. And so where did most of those cuts come? Operations, maintenance, and training. And to the degree the Air Force and the uh, Navy in particular have huge backlogs of maintenance can be traced right back to the Sequestration Act in 2011. So if you were to graph the defense budget over the past 10 or 15 years, it would, the base budget, not the, not the war supplementals, but the base budget, it would look like the EKG of a fibrillating heart. What the military needs is predictability. And if you could guarantee, if you could get a 10-year agreement out of the Congress for let's say, and pick a number, 3%, 3.5%, 4% of GDP, and be able to count on that, first of all, it would allow us to buy a lot more weaponry and a lot more capability, but we would also be able to do it at significantly lower cost because of the predictability and being able to buy in bulk and, and give predictability to the defense industries. You know, they're talking about wanting to do three Virginia-class submarines uh, a year now. That's going to require an additional investment in the shipyards. And, and so you're not going to make those kinds of investments if you don't know if you're going to have any money for it next year or two years from now. So I think that uh, a part, I, I think that the programs and the efforts that the military are making are all in uh, are all in the right direction. My biggest concern is 
the stability of the defense budget going forward. And when you have these huge spikes, when it goes up enormously one year and then down dramatically the next year, it's just, it's chaos. We're talking mostly big picture here, but I'm, I'm going to narrow the aperture just for a second and get both of your takes on this. Start with you, Ambassador. And right now, the controversy is that President Trump has said he wants to reduce the deployment in Afghanistan from 4,500. And people need to understand that's a very small deployment. We have had up to 100,000 troops there under previous administrations, 4,500. They are doing training. They are enabling uh, Afghan forces, international forces. They're working on counterterrorism. Um, they're allowing a, a, an intelligence capability there. Uh, they're doing force protection. Now he's talking, let's get it down to 2,500. Um, I'll be honest, that strikes me as inadvisable that, that uh, the military people I've talked to say that's just too too few to do those jobs. Why bring out 4,500 to you're doing well. You're keeping the Taliban out of the major cities, frustrating their ambitions. Why would you do that at this point? Anyhow, let me start with you, Ambassador. I just want to get your perspectives on this current issue. Well, I, I, I think this is a, a deeply irresponsible decision uh, being made uh, in a time of uh, presidential transition where typically, uh, and Secretary Gates, uh, as I have served through a number of these transitions, uh, typically, uh, new uh, departures like this are not undertaken in this period of time. And for all the reasons you suggest, Cliff, I think this is, is really ill-advised. But let me add a couple of others. Having talked to several of the recently uh, former senior defense officials who were um, uh, involved in the uh, discussions with President Trump and with Robert O'Brien about this, uh, it, it's clear that they objected to um, to this uh, a plan because it was not in fulfillment of the conditions that had been previously agreed inside the government, inside the Trump administration, that the Taliban would have to meet before we could contemplate such a reduction. And if you look at the uh, backgrounder uh, by uh, unidentified senior defense officials on Tuesday, that uh, were uh, in which they ex were undertaking to explain this decision. Um, they basically can't explain, uh, you know, the gap between the failure uh, to meet the conditions and the decision that was made. And my suspicion is that they're trying to drive the numbers down so low that the force, uh, which as you say, is not really a combat force. It's a, it's a training and equipping force uh, in support of the Afghan uh, security forces. Uh, that the numbers will get driven so low that all they will effectively be able to do is engage in force protection for themselves, at which point those in the Pentagon, like General Milley and others who've been resisting drawing down until we get the conditions met, will just throw up their hands and say, uncle, and pull the whole thing out, enabling the, uh, the president to, uh, to say that he's ended this endless war. But I think it will be ended in a very, very irresponsible way. And I know Secretary Gates and I had conversations about this when we were in office together. Uh, we both know what happened the last time the United States walked out the door in Afghanistan, and the story doesn't end well. And the last time we walked out the door um, in Iraq, which led to the rise of the Islamic State, I think pretty direct, directly. Uh, so what some people say, um, uh, Secretary Gates, is, well, you can do all these things that are do we're doing with uh, boots on the ground, not a large number, maybe. 
from satellites, from ships uh, at sea, uh, and from other places. And what I'm hearing from military people, I guess, that I rely on is no forward deployments are useful in a way that nothing else is, particularly in a place like Afghanistan, which is landlocked, uh, a place which is inaccessible. You don't want to go back to September 10th, 2001, where we did not have enough uh, intelligence to monitor what Al-Qaeda was doing, much less to threaten Al-Qaeda as they safely and securely and comfortably plotted against us. Let's give, give us your, your take on all that. I think the notion that uh, that you can accomplish those objectives uh, from a distance and without any boots on the ground is ridiculous. Um, and my concern, uh, you know, obviously we would all like to see our involvement in these uh, countries or our military involvement in, but, but this decision has been made to fulfill a political pledge and is totally unrelated to any kind of strategic thinking. And, you know, a drawdown of this kind has to be in the context of what's the strategy, what's the new mission. How do we how do we do this? And and we do it over time. We we're we have we run the risk of leaving <clears throat> six thousand NATO troops in the lurch. They de- they depend heavily on our presence on mm. the ground, not only for their protection, but in terms of resupply, in terms of medevac, and all different kinds of things. And and are we just going to leave these countries that have fought beside us for twenty years uh, to fend for themselves? Uh, so, I mean, my view is, yeah, maybe the numbers do need to come down, but you do it over time in the context of the, of the mission and in the context of a strategy. And as Eric was saying, in the context of the conditions on the ground, you know, the truth of the matter is, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Cliff, we had 100,000 troops there at one point, 102,000 at the, at the peak of the Afghan surge in uh, uh, 2009, and and we're now at 4,500. We have between 25 and 30,000 troops in South Korea. Uh, We have uh, thousands, we have 12,000 troops uh, or more. Uh, No, I can't remember the exact name, but we have a large number of troops in Europe. We have troops in Japan. Uh, and we've had them there for decades. And the, a commitment of 4,500 troops to put the Taliban on notice that they can't just come in and take over and impose Sharia law and everything else, uh, I think is, a, is, a, is an acceptable uh, price for us to pay and, and leave aside our aspirations for democracy and so on inside Afghanistan. This is all about our national interests. This is all about how do we prevent Al-Qaeda and ISIS from coming back in Afghanistan if the Taliban take total power. So this is not about some kind of idealistic uh, uh, aspiration. This is about hard-headed strategy for protecting the United States. And I would say the same thing is true of maintaining a certain force level in 3,500 or whatever we have in Iraq uh, for as long as we need to have them there. Uh, the, the combat losses are not zero, but they're very low, and, and the cost is, uh, is minimal. So I, I just think these things have to be looked at in a strategic context. And, and frankly, just to pick up the president's perspective, from the standpoint of American interests, 
this is what's important. It, it, it's important to keep this presence there, uh, not forever, but things are changing inside Afghanistan and our presence, I think, will have an impact. And it's not just about the training and equipping. It's also the on the ground counterterrorism capability that we have. You can't do that from a distance. You don't get that kind of information uh, uh, from a satellite. And, and so I think that uh, our own interests uh, uh, mandate uh, that, we, that we maintain these force levels. And, uh, and, and to try and get that number of forces out by January 15th is going to involve leaving a lot of equipment behind. It's going to involve isolating and, and endangering our allies. I think it's going to put the troops that we are leaving there in greater danger. I think it's just a misguided decision in, in every respect. And, and, you know, Ambassador Edelman, I, I don't mean to speak ill of one of your colleagues. I like uh, Zalmay Khalilzad. I admire him. Um, but I am not convinced by him that the Taliban has said, yeah, we reject al-Qaeda at this point. I think the evidence suggests that al-Qaeda, which remains strong, it is, it's, I think with reports of its death are way premature. It's, all, it's in many places around the world. Not least, by the way, in Iran, where a senior al-Qaeda uh, officer, if you will, uh, was recently, interestingly, uh, assassinated, which tells us something, not as much as we need to know about Iranian al-Qaeda relations over the years, also misperceived. But what I'm getting back to is that I think al-Qaeda and the Taliban are still joined at the hip. And they're all joined ideologically at the hip, and they're joined militarily at the hip, and that's the same. And, and the idea that they're going to say, no, we won't let al-Qaeda plan. And by the way, I also imagine the reason that you have al-Qaeda operatives in Iran is because the regime in Iran uses al-Qaeda when it's convenient to do so. And so if they said, okay, we want to get revenge for the assassination of Soleimani, for which I give President Trump great credit, but we don't want we don't want our fingerprints on it. Well, maybe you empower Al Qaeda and maybe you empower Al Qaeda in Afghanistan when the U.S. is no longer there in order to do that to you. Uh, and this kind of imagination, our, our, our intelligence people, our foreign, our foreign service officers, they need this kind of imagination of what might they do to us. We have often not had it in the past, which is one of the explanations for 9-11? That's a long question, I know, but I'm sure you have thoughts on this, Ambassador. Well, look, I mean, uh, in defense of my longtime colleague, Zal Khalilzad, um, I think if you're asked to go negotiate an agreement uh, with a group like the Taliban, um, but the President of the United States is making it clear the whole way that he wants to end this endless war and get all the U.S. troops out, uh, it, it makes it very difficult to do anything other than uh, try and negotiate uh, for what was uh, called in a different context a decent interval uh, between your your withdrawal and the catastrophe that will follow, and um, I think uh, I think it was a very tall order for Zal. I would agree with your uh, characterization. I also agree with what our colleague Tom Jocelyn has written for FDD, that it's not at all surprising that al-Masri would turn up dead in Iran because we know there have been all kinds of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, al-Qaeda folk uh, transiting uh, in and out of, of Iran, uh, including uh, close personal uh, relatives of Osama bin Laden. So, uh, you know, none of that, I think, should be surprising to anybody. 
Secretary, now, Ambassador Emma just used the phrase endless war. The other uh, phrase used is forever war. You've got a lot of people on both the left and the right, and sometimes some combination of that, and President Trump and Vice President Biden talking about, no, we shouldn't be involved in forever wars. And in a way, you've, you've already explained this in a way, but I'm not sure people get it. We, periods of peace in history are often very short and they're kept short. They, they can be lengthened only if you have the ability to deter your enemies and, and, and defeat them otherwise. But the idea that we will, that the, the, that wars and conflicts last forever, kinetically or not, or last for a long time, that's not unusual. That's what you find in history, which is why we are still in South Korea, why we are still in Europe, why we are in the Gulf, why we do still have troops in Africa, because our enemies are in these places. And if you say, well, we are going to restrain ourselves, what does that actually mean? It means we are going to cede territory to our enemies. If you are, if, 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 tell me if this analogy makes sense to you. Let's say yeah, the United States is a boxer in the ring. The last thing your coach tells you is when he starts hitting you, restrain yourself because you're going to end up flat on the mat. What you want to do is defend yourself carefully and get in as good shots when you have to. And if possible, make sure your opponent says, I ain't going in the ring with that guy again. I think that one of the phrases that I heard a lot um, in the Bush administration that I agree with, um, and it was in the context of Al-Qaeda and terrorism in general, was uh, better, better to fight on their 10-yard line than on our 10-yard line. Mm -hmm. And, and if, if by keeping 4,500 uh, troops in Afghanistan uh, indefinitely or 3,500 or 4,000 or whatever in Iraq uh, helps keep those threats to the United States. And, you know, people tend to forget these groups really hate us. And, and they don't hate us for specific actions. They hate us because of who we are and what we are and what we represent. Um, uh, that seems to me to be a very worthwhile investment. And, and it also sends a signal uh, that uh, we are not pulling back within our borders. I mean, you'd think, you'd think that uh, just if you, if you look at the, at the pandemic itself, the notion that we can ignore the rest of the world and just focus on our problems here at home, which are substantial, uh, is just incredibly naive, it seems to me. The world will reach out and touch us regardless. You know, I, I like to use the expression, who would have thought that the assassination of an obscure archduke in 1914 would affect us, or the annexation of the Sudetenland, or uh, the French defeated DMB and Fu, and or or, um, or the creation of uh, Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden moving to Afghanistan in 1996. And these things end up coming out and reaching, to, reaching out to hurt us. And so I would rather have a forward presence than uh, pull back and have to send back in some, at some point in the future another 100,000 or 150,000 troops to deal with a problem that has festered and then exploded. 
you know, and I would say the same thing. We haven't talked about the the requirement, uh, the demand to cut in half the number of troops in, in Germany. Mm-hmm. I think one of the positive things that's happened in recent years has been the forward deployment of U.S. forces to Poland, uh, our participation with other NATO allies in the air defense of the Baltic states, um, having a permanent troop presence in Poland. Uh, those things, I think, are a significant deterrent to Vladimir Putin. And because it signals it's, it's the tripwire, as we had with the Soviet Union for so long. If you come across that line, you're going to end up in a conflict with the United States, and it sends a very powerful message. And, you know, we've been back and forth on troop levels in Germany. You know, one thing that nobody talks about that Eric will know for sure, it'll cost billions of dollars to bring those brigades back to the United States. I mean, it's not just the brigades. They have their homes there. Their families are there. We have American schools there. They have homes there. All of that will have to be replicated in the United States. You'll have to rebuild or build all of that new at American bases. So the notion that that bringing troops home is going to save us money is absurd from Germany, not to mention the fact of what's the strategic message you're sending of bringing half those troops home. The truth is, it's cheaper to leave them there. It's strategically smarter to leave them there rather than uh, sort of a, a, a half-baked idea of, of bringing them home out of, out of a fit of peak. You know, Ambassador Edelman, uh, Secretary Gates in his book, one of the main concerns is that the U.S. is pulling back from global leadership. Um, and I know that... Uh, Vice President Biden doesn't want to do that, but I think we suspect he will cut military budgets uh, and other things. And there are these voices about on saying we got to get out of forever wars, endless wars. I think they're isolationists, neo-isolationists. The nicer word for them, I suppose, is restrainers. But the the problem the, the, the problem is, and Secretary Gates writes about this specifically in the in the book that whenever there is the perception or at worst the reality that the U.S. is pulling back from global leadership, well, guess who's going to step in? It's not the Danes. It's not the Dutch. It's going to be the Chinese or it's going to be the Russians or it's going to be the Iranians or it's going to be other very bad actors. And by the way, we can love our, our friends in Europe and love the European Union, although, and love NATO, but the Europeans are not stepping up in any way I can see. And let me add one more thing into this mix. And that is because I wrote about it this week myself, the UN, which is supposed to express the international community, I think has effectively been hijacked and taken over by bad actors and particularly China, but not just. So the UN Human Rights Commission, we just live with this, is dominated by serial egregious abusers of human rights. And we see that the World Health Organization is run by somebody who is the servant, the servant of, of, of Beijing. And I don't think we're, I don't think this administration has effectively addressed that. And I don't really expect at this point a future Biden administration to be likely to address that. Um, if they do, they will do so reluctantly because it's not an easy thing to recognize what's happened to the UN and the international community or do anything about it. Well, I, Cliff, I look, I certainly agree with that. But I, I mean, I think the problem is, uh, it requires actually uh, a lot of hard diplomatic work and Secretary Gates and I both go back a, a, a long time and, and we can remember times when the United States had to 
either threatened to withhold money or threatened to pull out of international organizations, but also mounted very powerful campaigns to make sure that the people who got elected to these positions, uh, in, in fact, were people who would be at a minimum, you know, willing to listen to the American case, if not well disposed to it. Um, you know, look, the WHO uh, has a lot to answer for uh, in terms of how it uh, managed uh, the uh, outbreak of COVID-19 and its willingness to you know, take uh, Chinese uh, lying about it at face value. I don't think the answer is for the U.S. to pull out of the WHO. It's to you know, uh, be in the WHO trying to make it actually effective and trying to counter uh, the Chinese wolf warrior diplomacy and the rest that we see in trying to duck its responsibilities for COVID, um, et cetera. So I, I do think that's a problem. On the, on the larger issue that you raise about, you know, restraint and uh, the vacuum, there is no doubt that, in my view, that when the U.S. does not provide leadership, um, the vacuum gets filled by a variety of other actors. Some of them are going to be malign, as the, as you suggested, uh, you know, the, the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians. We've seen that certainly in Syria, the Russians and Iranians have filled it. And the Turks, my, you know, my former, uh, my former clients when I was ambassador to Turkey have become now, according to Yossi Cohen, the head of Mossad, as big or bigger a disruptive influence in the region in the Eastern Mediterranean as Iran. Um, if you look at Libya, uh, you see it as well. But it's also not just that, you know, our adversaries are going to fill this vacuum. Sometimes our f- friends fill the vacuum, too. And predictably, they will do things that we don't like or think are stupid or self-defeating. Uh, and then we're going to have to come in and and then try and, you know, unsnarl what they have have done. And you can look at Yemen as a good example of, of you know, that kind of vacuum. Um, the broader problem, I think, is as well that I, I think there have been uh, some, both in the Trump and the Obama administrations, who have not really internalized the fact that our our national security commitments abroad uh, are not severable. Uh, it, it's not you, you can't say, well, I'm going to carry out my obligation in this corner of the world, uh, but maybe I'm I'm going to raise questions about my willingness to do it in some other corner of the world. You see that, I think, in the Obama red line um, business with um, Syria in 2013, because the people I heard from who are most concerned about that were the um, people from the Republic of Korea and Japan who were worried about U.S. willingness to defend them in the wake of the president of the United States walking away from a very explicit red line, which he maybe ill-advisedly had drawn, but had had drawn. Um, so I, I think that uh, it's very difficult to kind of uh, sever these commitments. You've got to demonstrate that you're prepared to meet your commitments everywhere. I'd like, to just, I'd like to just pile on to, to yeah. Eric's comment on the comments on the international organizations. One of the things that CIA developed a paper on during the Cold War was a Soviet strategy for placing its people throughout the UN and the international organizations. The Chinese have a similar strategy. Yes. And when we, when we pull out of an organization like the WHO, it basically gives the Chinese open field running to fill positions, to basically dominate the organization, to reap the benefits of any good that the organization does. 
to use those organizations as means of infiltrating and influencing many foreign countries. So I think, you know, when we leave an organization like this, it sort of gives the impression that, that we've picked up our football and left because we didn't like the way the game was being called. The solution is not to leave, but to lean into it and figure out a strategy of our own for how we put our people in, how we re- want these organizations to reform and to change, and then do the heavy lifting diplomatically and using other tools, including threatening to withhold money and various other uh, mechanisms to try and bring some positive change to these organizations, or at a minimum, to block the Chinese from taking them over and being able to use them as another instrument of influence for the Chinese. That's the danger of walking away, is you hand the Chinese another weapon. You know, in that article you wrote, Ambassador with Ray Dekai, that you mentioned in Foreign Affairs, I think it was in April, you had a, something, you said something rather bold, I'm going to I'm going to quote you here. Regime change, you wrote, is not a radical or reckless idea, but the most pragmatic and effective goal for U.S. policy toward Iran. Indeed, it is the only objective that has any chance of meaningfully reducing the Iranian threat. Perhaps just we're only we're down to our last five or so minutes, but you might want to expand upon that and tell what you mean by that. And then we'll get to the secretary to weigh in. Well, I, I'm going to do that by quoting from Secretary Gates's book in which he says, the U.S. goal in Iran must be a change in regime that arises from the Iranian people themselves. I mean, I, Ray and I heartily agree with, <laughs> with that. I mean, I, I think the problem with regime change in Iran is it's frequently, uh, you know, caricatured as, oh, this is, you know, another neocon plot to have a big military intervention in the Middle East and, you know, uh, occupy another country. Far from it. Um, I, I think that the problem we've run into, um, and Secretary Gates has written about this in other places rather than this book, but uh, since the revolution in 1979, uh, multiple U.S. administrations have you know, sought in vain to find what Secretary Gates has called the elusive Iranian moderates. And, uh, and they've all come a cropper, and, and uh, some have nearly been impeached for it. And, and the, the problem is that the nature of the Iranian revolution is such that anti-Americanism is baked into the cake. It is just a, an, an important part of the revolutionary identity of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Should we try and negotiate with them? I'm all in favor of trying to negotiate uh, and as long as we you know, uh, don't negotiate with ourselves you know, to the point that we accept a bad agreement. But uh, I'm I'm doubtful we will ever get there uh, unless there's su- such significant internal pressure uh, that the regime uh, either gives way to a new regime or in fear that it will not be able to survive if it doesn't uh, reaches some kind of agreement that that uh, we can then enforce. So I think that uh, I mean, I agree with Eric and 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 I think that. There are forces uh, existing inside Iran that are there to build on. One of the things that was the most impressive, uh, and I I may get the year wrong, but about the demonstrations in January of 2018 was that they were not Tehran focused. They were in multiple cities all across Iran, where, where where in the past, almost all of the protests against the regime have been in uh, in Tehran by university students and others. The protests in 2018 really were 
spread across the country, including smaller cities and in rural areas that actually have been the base for the, for the theological regime. And, and, and there were signs of, you know, death to the dictator. The irony, as I write in the book, is those were the same signs that showed up against the Shah, and now they're being used against Khamenei. And, and so I think that there, there is a, a huge base of discontent in Iran uh, by an educated and pretty sophisticated people. And, and for example, I think we could have done a lot more to demonstrate our support for them during the Green Revolution in 2009, in June of 2009. But again, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about using our technologies and capabilities to get messages to those people, to provide them the same kind of support that we provided to Solidarity in the 1980s. Um, you know, there are a lot of things we can do. You, you have to be careful not to overpromise or lead folks on to believe that we will intervene militarily on their behalf if they rise up. But we can send the message that we support them. We can send clandestinely things that would enable them to organize better and communicate better internally among themselves in ways that protect them against the regime. There are, there are mechanisms that we have used in the past that I think we could use inside Iran uh, to help um, uh, not only foment more, uh, more protests, but to help those who are opposed to the regime um, have a broader appeal to the people and create circumstances such as those demonstrations in 2018 uh, that really do put the squeeze on the regime. I mean, it was very interesting to see th th the reaction of the regime to those protests was statements, well, they have a point and we need to address these. So they were serious enough, it worried the regime. And so I think, I think there's some real potential here, um, but it requires a strategy and, and frankly, it requires the will. Well, and Secretary Gates, your book on the powers we have, the powers we've had, the powers we should have, touches on so many significant, challenging, and really threatening issues, past, present, and future. I, serious students should read it. They should have a pen and a highlighter when they do. And I wish we had time to discuss more of these issues. Um, but for now, let me thank you. Let me thank also Ambassador Edelman. I advise everybody listening to read and follow anything Ambassador Edelman writes. Again, that's all we have time for today, except again to say thanks to the Secretary and to the Ambassador and to all of you for listening to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.